Good evening. Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Nicola Lacey, and it's my very, very great pleasure to welcome you all. It's wonderful to see so many of you here this evening. I welcome you on behalf of the International Inequalities Institute and the Law Department to this event, which is to launch in this country and to hear about Dr. Christopher Young's uh, new book, The Myth of Millionaire Tax Flight. Um, Christopher, who's on the right, is uh, he is um, assistant, um, sorry, professor of sociology at Stanford. So he's very kindly left the sunshine behind to come and talk to us. And his article, earlier article, "Millionaire Migration and Taxation of the Elite," won the American Sociological Association's Granovetta Award for the best article in economic sociology this year. Um, his new book has just, was just published last month, so we're very lucky to hear about it so quickly. And many of you may have seen his op-ed piece in The Guardian this morning, which really sums up the arguments of the book very, very crisply. Christopher works, in fact, in the overlapping fields of economic sociology, stratification, and constitutive methods, and he studies the sociological dynamics surrounding public policies that moderate income inequality. And without giving anything away, I'd just like to say that um, one of the wonderful things about uh, his book is that it not only has a really clear policy upshot, but it has very, very broad implications for the social sciences and for political science quite generally. Um, and it's also the most eloquent demonstration of the great importance of bringing big data to bear on key social science and policy questions. Sitting to Christopher's left is my colleague, Dr. Andrew Summers, who's Assistant Professor of Law in the Law Department here, but also an Associate Member of the Inequalities Institute. Uh, and uh, Andy has two particular claims to fame this evening. The first is that he teaches uh, a new master's course on the taxation of wealth. Uh, and the second is that he had the brilliant idea of inviting Christopher. <laughs> And then thirdly, on the left, uh, we have Ed Miliband. We're very grateful to Ed for finding time to, he's a very loyal LSE alumnus, and we're always delighted to welcome him here. He's, as many of you will know, he's Member of Parliament for Doncaster North. He was leader of the Labour Party and the Labour Opposition from 2010 to 2015, and before that, he served in the Labour Cabinet as Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change, an issue to which he remains very committed. But he also has something very strongly in common with Christopher, which is that they're both this evening uh, and beyond giving us reasons to be cheerful, because Ed has recently started doing a, a, a very, very widely followed popular and successful podcast, Reasons to be Cheerful, and he is a graduate of the LSE. Just a couple of practical uh, things. Um, afterwards, there will be copies of the book, I think I'm right in saying, available for, for, um, to buy outside the lecture theatre. And Christopher's very kindly said that he would stay and sign copies for anybody who's going to buy the book, um, or indeed has it already. Um, could I just remind you to switch your mobile phones to silent and to take note of the hashtag for this evening's event. The way we're going to handle things is that um, 
Chris will speak first for about 35 to 40 minutes. Then Andy and Ed, in that order, will each do a sort of 10 to 15 minute comment, leaving, we hope, some time for your questions. Thank you very, very much, and join me now in welcoming our speaker. Hi, everyone. Thank you all for uh, coming out tonight. It's a uh, really great pleasure to be here. And thank you for the wonderful introduction, Nikki. Appreciate it. So we live in a time of both globalization and growing inequality. And, um, and this sort of dual trend um, presents a troubling challenge, because places and nations can alleviate inequality, at least in part by taxing very high incomes and then investing in education, infrastructure, public services, things that make life better for most people. But on the flip side, globalization seems to render the rich um, more mobile and less connected to places that might tax them. So the potential, uh, the potential flight of the rich leaves places, states, and nations feeling vulnerable. And the migration of top taxpayers can potentially drain state revenues and set off a sort of race to the bottom as states compete to offer lower and lower tax rates to the highest income earners. So my question today is, you know, how realistic is this concern? Is this the world that we're living in today? How much do we need to worry about this? Ultimately, this is a study about um, millionaire taxes and their effects. Uh, at the state level in the U.S. And so why are we focusing on millionaire taxes? And I think there's a few basic reasons, three basic reasons that I put out. One is that over the past 30 years, um, many countries have been facing a tremendous challenge of, of growing income inequality. And this shows within the U.S. the distribution of income growth over the past 35 years, starting from uh, on the left side, uh, the fifth percentile of the income distribution, and over the last 35 years, uh, this group has seen no real improvement in their, in their standard of living. For the broad-based middle class, there's been about 1% income growth annual, on an annualized basis. And at the very far tail, we see that um, the sort of the 1% living almost in a separate economic world with uh, tremendous income growth. So this concept of shared prosperity is really under strain today, and money is massing at the top in ways that we haven't seen in generations. At the same time, there's been very few clear policy responses to growing inequality. So what are we going to do about this? Um, in the U.S., at the federal level, uh, tax policy has shifted away from the taxation of the elite, reducing tax rates on top incomes, which I show here, um, tax rates on capital gains, reducing taxes on multi-million dollar inheritances. It's a process to sort of untax, untax the 1%, as um, some sociologists have referred to it. So this shows the top marginal tax rate on income over the last century. Um, we easily forget that in the late 50s, 1960s, the top marginal tax rate uh, was 90%. And, and over this time, as inequality has grown, the top rate has fallen to about 40% today. So we have this world of both rising inequality and declining taxes, declining federal taxes on the elite. So partly in response, state tax systems have been sort of going where the money is and finding new revenues at the very top of the income distribution. So 
In the recent years, nine U.S. states have passed so-called millionaire taxes. These are new tax brackets at the very top of the income distribution. Uh, very prominent among them have been California, New York, and New Jersey. Um, but not all states are going here, and um, there also happen to be still nine states in the U.S. today, including big ones like uh, Florida and Texas, that have no state income tax system at all. So um, state millionaire taxes really uh, are a reflection of growing polarization in the U.S. Um, and what some are calling a great divergence across states on sort of salient social and economic policies. So a question that arises, how sustainable is this sort of growth in the varieties of elite taxation? Um, can some regions in the U.S. have systems of elite taxation when others do not? And can these higher tax states retain their wealthy residents and the, and the tax revenues that they bring in? So some argue very passionately that the answer is no, this is not sustainable at all. So in the classic uh, Ayn Rand novel, Atlas Shrugged, um, the working title of this book was called The Strike. And the theme is that, that the rich essentially go on strike. And the suspense of the book is that the rich are disappearing and, and, and what's happened. And they're withdrawing their services from society um, and sort of removing themselves in protest against taxes and regulation. Um, and so weary of carrying an ungrateful world on their shoulders, the, uh, um, the top business leaders and top income earners sort of finally shrug and uh, leave the world without them, uh, left to uh, fend to its own devices. And this metaphor in Atlas Shrugged uh, still inspires a lot of political rhetoric to this day. If you tax the rich, they will leave. These views are really common in the United States. Uh, particularly where states are setting their own tax policies uh, and where many warn that taxes on the rich will lead to millionaire migration. So a um, nice example of this is the CEO of Nike, a major multinational corporation. Uh, he lived, Phil Knight, he lives in Oregon, and when his state passed a millionaire's tax uh, with voter approval, he wrote an op-ed uh, warning that the tax would set off a death spiral um, in which thousands of the most successful residents will leave the state. My favorite example of this is uh, New, New, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, Ladies and gentlemen, if you tax them, they will leave. Um, this is how the rich threaten to go on strike in the modern world. Um, they talk about mobility. But it's not just Ayn Rand enthusiasts uh, that get caught up in this. Uh, on the left, there's also a growing sense that um, the rich live in a world without borders today, uh, that they become hypermobile and are beyond the reach of state or national governments. There's an idea of a sort of a transnational capitalist class um, that's sort of moving across the world through networks of global cities. And uh, the nation state, with its old restrictions of geography, is less and less able to tax and regulate uh, this group. So both sides of the political spectrum at the end of the day, are drawing on a very similar narrative of, of elite mobility for very different political purposes and, and intentions, but, but it's a common uh, story. I actually think that there's good reasons to be skeptical of these arguments. The views of elite mobility are ultimately rooted in a very highly individualistic conception of elite income. Um, so it makes it sound like 
Earning top income is purely an individual accomplishment that doesn't depend on place or on other people. So if I'm, a, if I'm someone earning a million dollars a year in New York, that's just my inherent earning power, and I can take that with me anywhere in the world I want. Um, this really ignores the role, it ignores a few things, but it really ignores the role of social capital in the creation of elite income. So income earning capacity derives certainly from human capital, from individual talent, from work ethic. And these, this is sort of stuff that's inside people's heads, and they can take their education and their work ethic with them anywhere in the world they want. This stuff is mobile. Um, but also really important is one's social capital, um, social, professional, and business connections to colleagues, collaborators, investors, and clients. Um, the thing about social capital is that it depreciates as you move it away from the places where it was developed. Because people can move, an individual can move, but they can't take their social networks with them. They can't take their social ties with them. Um, and particularly as people develop um, and, and advance in their careers and become more and more successful, they build a lot more of this social capital in their careers. So elites are people who have become sort of embedded insiders, uh, really uh, enmeshed in the places where they earn their fortune. So. Here's the ultimate question at the end of the day. What is the connection between the rich and the places where they live? Is place a temporary convenience for the rich and powerful? Or is, it, is place part of the foundation for success? Slightly differently, are top income earners mobile millionaires um, searching for low-tax places to live? Or are they embedded elites um, who are reluctant to migrate away from places where they've been highly successful. So previous evidence on this, on this kind of question has been very limited. The central problem with studying uh, economic elites is the difficulty in getting good data on them. Um, so in the census, um, people's incomes gets top-coded, and you really can't look at the, at the very highest income earners from this kind of data. As individuals, um, elites tend to be extremely protective of their personal privacy, and so it's hard, to, it's hard to engage with evidence on them, but they have to file their tax returns, and this is where my data comes from. So what I'm going to present today is in part based on a study of IRS tax returns. This is individual records for all millionaire uh, income filers. This is everyone who earned a million dollars a year or more in income. Um, across all states over the period 1999-2011, about 13 years. Um, I have about 45 million observations. It comes from 3.7 million unique millionaires followed over this time period. Uh, so um, essentially census scale panel data on where millionaires live and where they move to. For comparison, Pulled also a 1% sample of all tax filers, another 24 million observations, essentially going to run separate uh, migration analyses for both uh, millionaires and the general public. So last sort of definitional detail, we track people. Attract people as they change the state from which they file their federal tax returns. And um, this is the definition of a migrant. And if they earned a million dollars in the year that they moved, they're millionaire migrants. Okay, so where do millionaires live? Starting out with a really simple question. 
Um, and do they tend to live in low-tax states? So this map shows um, millionaire density across the, uh, uh, across the United States. Um, and it shows pretty clearly that um, millionaires are very highly clustered in the, in the sort of northeastern states. That's New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts. Um, um, yeah. And, um, you know, every state has some millionaires. But well, the question we want to ask from looking at this is, does this distribution of the millionaire population, is it driven by tax differences across states? How does this map on? And the first thing to point out is this region, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, are all like pretty high tax places. But uh, we can do analysis here. We look at um, the millionaire density on this axis and then the state tax rate along the bottom, ranging from zero state income taxes on million dollar incomes in the low-tax states like Florida and Texas, all up to about 10% of annual income in the higher-tax states. And overall, we see that the relationship is very flat, that um, the low-tax states have about average millionaire density in them, as do most of us. So right out the gate, um, the evidence for this sort of Ayn Rand, the ritual leave perspective doesn't seem very compelling in this sort of uh, and this sort of very basic look at the data, you could say, oh, well, New York, they would have more millionaires if they were a low-tax state. But, but it's already sort of the proponents of millionaire tax migration that, that have a lot of explaining to do just on the first glance. The face validity of the argument is not fantastic. Okay, next question. Are millionaires highly mobile? This is obviously absolutely central to, to the underlying argument. And so just look at migration rates by income uh, pooled over this period. And we see pretty clearly that the highest migration rates are, by the are among the lowest income earners. This is cross-state <coughs> migration. And for people who are, who are making about $8,000 a year in annual income, not much to live on, they have the highest migration rates of about 4.5%. Then migration declines very consistently with income, uh, getting to a minimum at about $110,000 a year in annual income. So this really sort of presents an image that's very different. Like, like travel is a classic luxury good, but migration is not. Migration is very different. That um, Migration is mostly about people who seem to have a poor economic fit with where they live. Um, they're struggling economically. They're probably earning uh, below market wages. And they're trying to find, and migration is part of their strategy of, of finding a better livelihood and a better future for themselves. And migration declines with income because these people down on this end are doing very well. They have a good fit with place, and they have very little motivation to, to branch out and, and find a new place and, and, and endure the sort of costs of, of migration, which are more than just the moving truck costs. Um, it's a lot of social costs. But there is, there is a grain of truth in the millionaire uh, migration hypothesis. We see that when we get into the very high incomes, so upwards of a million, two million, five million dollars a year in annual income, um, that uh, migration does start to creep up again a little bit. So overall, migration rate of millionaires is 2.4%. Even people making five million dollars a year have lower migration rates than the average American citizen and much lower migration rates than the poor. So at best, we could say that millionaires are a bit more mobile than, say, the upper middle class. 
How much of millionaire migration has a tax, has a tax incentive, is tax-induced migration? Uh, we've seen, so we just showed, millionaires on average have low rates of migration. How much of that is driven by taxes? Which is essentially the empirical question is, do millionaires systematically move from high tax to low tax states? If they're just moving across states, this doesn't per se have anything to do with the tax system. So we really need to see, we really need to meet this definition as a basic, as a basic condition. And I'll start to show you just a very simple analysis, and then we can do this more in a more complex way. But to start out with, um, here's a map of net millionaire migration by state over the whole period. This has a heat map interpretation, so the states that are in blue. Uh, uh, you can think of them as sort of metaphorically, well, and literally, being cold. And uh, millionaires are sort of moving away uh, from those places on net. And then the states shaded in orange are sort of heating up because uh, millionaires are moving there. And so pretty clear patterns. There's net out-migration of millionaires from the mids. That's the Midwest and the Mid-Atlantic. And in-migration to the sort of the non-coastal west. And, uh, and the South Atlantic in particular. And Florida, I wasn't able to shade Florida brightly enough to emphasize how important it is in migration, but we'll come back to it. But the next question we automatically want to ask is like, okay, well, is this map driven by the tax differences between states? Are the states in blue like the high tax states and in orange the low tax states? Um, so what we can do, actually, super simple analysis, just put this in bins and say, of these millionaire migrations that do occur, how many of them are to a higher tax state? So that after the move, they're actually paying more tax than they did when they, where they were before. Um, moving to find our ways to pay more tax. This is actually fairly common in the data. 32% of millionaire migrations are to a higher tax state. Um, about 21%, so obviously this isn't driven by the idea that they want to pay more taxes. Um, they presumably have some other reason for wanting to live there. About 21% of migrations um, are basically just between states that have the same tax rate on millionaires. Um, and then when we get to moving to a lower tax state, here's where we start to see evidence of tax-induced migration. 47% of all millionaire migrations are to a lower tax state. So we can see this sort of top fraction, uh, this sort of like this 15% of millionaire migrations are sort of excess migration to low tax states. So about 15% of millionaire migrations come with a tax advantage. The other 85% of millionaire migrations essentially balance out that on net have no tax advantage. So... Um, there's some that's happening, but let's think about this. Is this so is this a lot? Well, remember, I just, just showed you that the overall millionaire migration rate is 2.4%. 15% of that, is, uh, so 15% of this small fraction, 2.4%, we get to the millionaire tax migration rate of one-third of 1%. So millionaire tax migration rate is not zero, but it's very close to it. <coughs> Another just simple way of driving this home. Over this whole period, we observed in the tax data 165,000 cases of millionaire migrations. Okay? Of these, 
20,000 20, have some tax advantage that goes, some net tax advantage that goes with them. Um, and this is on a base population of 3.7 million millionaires who collectively filed 45 million annual tax returns. So we're getting 20,000 out of this 45 million annual observations of millionaires. We're getting into what can really be called just a drop in the bucket of the millionaire population that's moving over this 13-year period. So enough to feed the anecdote mill, but um, not enough to, uh, so that we can think of examples where this happens, but not enough to really matter for states. As a social scientist, I feel like I would be remiss if I just showed you this sort of basic sort of ballpark analysis. So the way you do this more formally is something we call a gravity model. I'll just tell you a bit about it. Um, but we take every single millionaire migration and we look at the move from the origin state to the destination state. And we say it's a function of the number of millionaires in each state. So think of a gravity model. Like states with big millionaire populations have gravitational pull between them. You see more migration between them than small millionaire population states. The distance to them obviously matters. Contiguity or are they exactly touching? And then the tax rate difference, the tax on millionaires, the tax rate difference. This is a basic um, gravity model setup. And then we can also control for other things like state, um, other state taxes. If a state doesn't have uh, an income tax at all, and it's not taxing high income earners, then it has to rely on other sources of revenue, and that's typically the sales tax and the property tax in the state. I also have a dummy variable for whether or not there's an inheritance tax. Can control for economic performance between states. Um, maybe millionaires want to live in like prosperous, thriving states. So we can look at per, per capita income and employment rate. Natural climate, uh, we can think about winter temperatures, summer humidity, uh, coastal access, these sort of um, agreeable natural amenities. And then finally, residential land prices, um, something that people who live in London probably think about quite a bit. What's the uh, market demand for living in a place and can control for all of these things? And then finally, we can break up this model and run it separately for, for say, like, why just look at millionaires? Why not 10 millionaires? Let's look at the super rich, and we can run this model looking at the super rich. Um, look at people who are of retirement age, and maybe they're different. We can look at specifically business owners and specifically sort of capitalists, people who earn the vast majority of their income from capital gains and capital market earnings, and, and more. And there's, and there's many interesting details and, and stories that come out of this, but what I want to emphasize is that the overall thrust is like we get a very similar answer uh, from this more technical model as we do from just sort of a basic uh, ballpark analysis. So what I showed you before is very robust to like more, much more technical and detailed ways of doing uh, the analysis. One more thing I wanted to mention, which is uh, an issue of Florida. I mentioned it in the maps. So let me show you another map. Also has a heat map interpretation. This is net migration between Florida and all other states. And so the blue shading that you see in basically every state means that every state sees on net migration of, migration of millionaires to Florida. Very few counterexamples, uh, Arizona being one of them. Um, so 
this is the state, and um, here's, here's a simple way of, an, of announcement. We do a few ways of dealing with, with Florida, but here's a simple way. So this is the net migration flows but into high tax, into same tax, into lower tax states. This is what I just showed you a minute ago. Well, what if we just take Florida out of this for a second and say, okay, hold Florida for a minute, and let's look at millionaire migration between all other states. And there are plenty of other states that uh, compete to offer sort of quasi-tax haven status, like Texas, Tennessee, Washington State. Um, and this is what happens when you set aside Florida, is that now you basically see no difference in moving into a higher tax versus moving into a lower tax state. <coughs> Basically, all the evidence for tax-induced migration is migration into Florida. Um, so, you know, and this is a place where it's a unique state. And so it just really begs the question, if this is the main reason we see uh, tax migration, you know, what exactly is Florida? Is it, you know, is it a tax haven or is it a luxury resort? Does Florida show the benefits of having a, a system of low taxes on the rich? Or does it show the benefits of having um, coastal access to the Caribbean Sea? And it's kind of a unique state. It's, it's hard to think of the exact counterfactual um, for Florida. Some people call it the uh, Hawaii of the East Coast. But Hawaii is a really different place. Um, it's in the middle of nowhere, and it's uh, one thirtieth the size of Florida, and you can't drive there from New York. So, <laughs> so I think this is a little bit difficult to disentangle. One extra way of, of thinking about this is just millionaires at the border. In the interest of time, I'm just going to tell you we also did this analysis. There's a whole bunch of border county regions in the U.S. where you have. You know, migrations across long distances are hard, and our models show that. Even for rich people, they don't want to move long distances any more than a regular person does. But we have these border county regions, um, like this is Oregon and Washington. Uh, Oregon has, for decades, had one of the most progressive state income tax regimes in the country, and then Washington state has never had a state income tax. And right along the border here, you've got you know, cities across the border, a uh, place that really feels sort of arbitrarily separated by a state border and, and very different tax systems on one side or the other. Um, and so this is an analysis that we pursue as well. And again, the basic conclusions are very robust uh, to looking at this. Um, in the example of Washington, the millionaires actually all live on the Oregon side and the Washington state side. You know, not all the traffic lights work and some of the storefronts are empty and it's just, it's not a place where over decades, the millionaires of Portland have figured out a way to live on just the other side of the river. Um, Connecticut's a little bit of a counterexample. Overall, we, do, we just don't see uh, much of this happening and not statistically significant overall. So, um, at this point, I wanted to pivot a little bit away from the U.S. and take a step back and think about the world um, and the richest people in the world. For this, uh, my research assistants and I dug into the Forbes list of the world's billionaires. This is everyone with a net worth of a billion dollars or more in every country in the world, and ask some basic and do some basic analysis of migration for these people who seem to have no economic constraints on where in the world they wish to live. So we started with the 2010 list. We followed up into 2015, but um, just the baseline. So 84% of these people live in their country of birth. 
And uh, only 16% live abroad in some sense, live in a different country than where they were born. So is that, to so are these billionaires thinking about going from the mobile millionaire hypothesis to the mobile billionaire hypothesis? Does this mean that uh, billionaires are mobile? Uh, simple examples we can think of is long-term migration among the world's population. So it turns out that 3% of the world's population lives outside their country of birth today. Interestingly enough, this hasn't changed since 1960, where it was 2.9% of the world's population lived outside their country of birth. Globalization, in, in many respects, has been misunderstood. If you look to the, the population of developed Western countries of the OECD, you see like pretty reliably about 11% of the population of these countries um, were born uh, outside, uh, were born abroad. And so by comparison then, billionaires are more mobile in this sense. Uh, they're about five percentage points more likely to live abroad um, than the typical resident uh, of a Western country. Um, so modestly so. And a nice contrast is with physics, with uh, top physicists who are much more mobile. And physics is this really globalized discipline where uh, physicists across the world, whether they're in Russia or China or the UK or Britain or Brazil, they're all studying the same problems in physics. And they're all publishing in the same English language journals. It's, very, it's a very globalized discipline and we see this reflected in the mobility among top physicists. So physics is much more globalized than business, which is something that we think of as, as having been so. Um, part of it is just, you know, uh, companies have offshored a lot of production and, you know, working class jobs have been globalized, but the administration of major corporations has not globalized. They're still managed from major cities of the Western world and people are not moving. The people who run them are very rarely moving. So, but I wanted to dig into this just a little bit more. I apologize, pie graph. I generally live by the rule, don't show pie graphs. <laughs> but it just happens in this case that it's useful. So we have this fraction, 16% of billionaires live abroad. Does this mean that they're mobile billionaires? Well, when you start looking at who these people are, the answer is like, hold on. Good example is um, Sergey Brin. He's a co-founder of Google. He was born in the Soviet Union, and he moved to the United States when he was five years old. He is not mobile. His parents were mobile. His parents took him to a different country. He's gone on to be very successful there. Um, but he lives where he started his company. And that, and that pretty much matches about 30% of, of these billionaires who live, somewhere, live outside of their, their country of birth. About 30% of them moved as children. They're not mobile. Their parents were. Another almost 40% moved um, very early in their career. And this is very typically for professional school. An example of this would be um, Vinod Kosla. He's a co-founder of Sun Microsystems and uh, a major player in venture capital in Silicon Valley. Uh, he moved to the US to get his MBA at Stanford and now lives uh, essentially just down the road from the university. It's really this last fraction, about 30, just over 30%, who moved after they became successful, after they became billionaires or nearly so. Um, an example of this is Richard Branson of the Virgin Group. Um, you know, that's uh, Virgin Records and then Virgin Airlines and then there's spaceships, so Virgin Galactic. 
And, and after that, he moved to the British Virgin Islands, um, keeping with the brand. Um, classic example of someone who's used his wealth and power to really unplug from the nation state and live you know, a cosmopolitan, uh, low-tax uh, uh, lifestyle um, in, a, in a classic tropical tax haven. Um, but what we're talking about here is about a third of the 16% who live abroad. 30% of the 16%. This is 5% of the global billionaires whose life stories really match on to this narrative of a transnational capitalist class. Quick point I will add here. There's more analyses of this in the book, and I think it's interesting, but in the interest of time, I'll just quickly show you. So do countries, do countries that seem billionaires born in their, in their lands, in their... Are they more successful at um, retaining their billionaires when they have low taxes? So this is essentially a billionaire retention model. We see um, percent of billionaire nationals that are retained. The average is over 80%. Here's the top marginal tax rate in these countries. Um, there's a lot of range, like Greece does a very bad job of retaining its billionaires. Um, Kenya, Estonia, Belarus do terrible jobs of they don't retain their billionaires even though they have low tax rates. Uh, where is the UK? The UK is over here. Uh, about average, the United States retains the United States retains 98% of the billionaires who are born in their country. They all live in the US. Um, same with China. Um, so it's really a story of, you know, um, American elites live in the U.S. British elites basically live in the U.K. Uh, Chinese elite live in China. Um, and the tax rate is not an explanatory factor. One thing that is, it's having a big uh, developed market. High GDP countries with big populations like the U.S., the U.K., China to some extent. Um, China's a huge market these days. And these countries do a great job of retaining billionaires. The tax rates aren't explaining this um, in this sort of basic analysis. So, so we're coming down to a point where 5% of the world's billionaires are these sort of classic globals unplugged from their nation states, really traversing the world for a cosmopolitan lifestyle and low taxes. And favorite destinations are, well, this place, if that looks familiar at all, and, uh, and Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And both of these happen to be countries that offer a essentially tax haven status, quasi-tax haven status, to foreign billionaires. They offer a separate set of tax rules for the foreign elite than they do for uh, for citizens of these countries and provide a way for some of these people to avoid the taxes of their homeland and the taxes of their host country. And um, it's, it's a strange policy to me, but there are high, high concentrations of where these 5% are. Uh, most of them are here. Some of them are in the Caribbean tax havens. Um, but the other 95% live where they were born or where they started their careers. And that's the point to remember. Because these anecdotes are driven by here, but the, but the thrust, of the weight of the evidence is really, is really here. Globalization for the elite is mostly about travel for both sort of business and leisure, and they do a lot of it. Uh, but very little of globalization is about people moving to it and living in a different country um, for the elite. 95% of the world's billionaires are not any further beyond the reach of the nation state than you or I or, or, or anyone else. So should states tax millionaires? Um, 
I really strongly believe in deliberative democracy, which means I can't answer this question and these data can't answer that question for you. They can answer a closely related question. Can states tax millionaires? And the Ayn Rand enthusiasts will tell you, no, they can't because the rich will leave. You can try to tax them, but it won't work. And, um, and, so, and that's an empirical question. Uh, and it comes down to a question of what's the revenue-maximizing tax rate? What's the optimal tax rate on top incomes? We have a formula for this that derives from the public finance literature. Um, and then there's this thing. Uh, anyone here know what this thing is? Any? Laffer? Yes, this is the Laffer curve. Yes, exactly. So Arthur Laffer uh, famously um, drew this on a napkin in a bar in the 1980s. Um, which I think is really legit. I mean, my favorite bar conversations involve somebody graphing something on a napkin at some point. <laughs> so, you know, I like it. But, but basically what it shows is that, whoops, that there's some tax rate, T star, that maximizes the amount of revenue you can get, uh, revenue being here. And if the tax rates are below that, well, you'll get less revenue. But also if the tax rates are, are above that, you'll get less revenue because of these evasion strategies, right? So the classic one, I keep doing this, the classic one is captured in this parameter E, that it's, like, it's an elasticity. It's just when the taxes are higher, people tend to find ways to report less income. Um, and I just take this estimate from the literature. My contribution is ADA here. This is, well, they might leave, and you would lose revenue because of that. So we can put my estimates in there and come up with what is the, what is the revenue maximizing tax rate on million-dollar incomes. It's pretty simple. I take this estimate from the literature, um, and my estimate of tax elasticity is, or population elasticity, people moving, as I've been demonstrating, is very low. Um, and this gives you a top tax rate on million-dollar incomes of 68%. 68%. So that's much higher than what we see anywhere in the U.S. Um, to justify these sort of low tax rates that we see in the U.S., you would need, you could do it if, if the migration rates, if the migration effects that I observe in the tax data were not 0.1, but 1 or 1.5, 10 to 15 times larger than what we see in a census of millionaires. If there was 10 to 15 times as much millionaire migration for tax purposes, yeah, that would mean that you'd need to keep taxes low to uh, avoid losing revenue to this tax flight. But we're a long ways from there. So coming back to the title of the book, um, Myth of Millionaire Tax Flight, I want to clarify. It's not that millionaire tax flight never occurs. You can't come up with an example of it. It does sometimes occur, and you can see it in big administrative data on all top income earners. Um, but the point is that the magnitude of these effects is very small. Uh, a third of a percent is the tax migration rate over the long term. It's, it, it's too small to have any real meaningful effect on the stock of millionaires in the states. Like, how many millionaires are you going to have left paying the taxes? These migration magnitudes are too small to seriously affect this. And what that means is that the tax rates, the, the migration effects today are just too small to matter for current debates about tax policy. They could in the future, if we set tax rates really high at the state level, we could be in a different world, but we're a long way from that conversation. So why was the intuition about millionaire migration so wrong? And I think the basic answer is that places are sticky. 
Um, as people advance in their careers, they accumulate a lot of things that tie them to place. And this is marriages, children, businesses, place-specific social capital. One of the things I haven't shown you, but like millionaires, they're almost all married. 90% of millionaires are married compared to less than 60% of the general population. They're much more likely to have children. They're much more likely to own businesses. And all of these things are, are factors that tie people to place and make it hard to move. This so place-specific social capital is something that grows. These are social ties that what makes you an insider in a place. Um, all this accumulates. And so I want to leave with a, one final puzzle about education and income for migration. When I presented working versions of this, I've, you know, I routinely have like very thoughtful and informed uh, audiences and people pushing, it's like, okay, Here's a, I see your evidence. Here's a big question I've got. You know, don't we know that the highly educated, like college goers, are much more mobile than the, than, than the non-college goers? So that education increases mobility. And, and then come to think of it, aren't also like the highly educated also the high income earners? So they're sort of the same people. So how can it be that the highly educated are, are, are really mobile, but high income earners are not mobile. And what I love about this puzzle is these two seemingly contradictory facts are actually both true. And uh, here's how we can show it. So I don't have educational attainment in the tax data, so I went to the census, the US census, and, and looked at this, and how does this play out for most people? And this is, we're gonna have migration by age over the life course for different educational groups, from young adults to middle age to retirement. We start with uh, people who have low education, people who did not uh, graduate high school. What we see is that over their whole lives, they have very low migration rates, okay? If we look at people who, have, who did graduate high school or have some college, migration rates are higher, but only when they're quite young, and then very quickly converge to the migration rate of high school dropouts. We see this for college graduates even more dramatically. People who go to college in the years right after college, they're much more mobile. Often in the US, at least, often the whole country is their job market, and many of them move. Um, and then master's degree or PhDs um, see high migration rates. But by the time, I mean, almost 80% of this difference is dissolved by the late 30s. By age 44, basically, age 40, 45, Basically, everyone, PhDs, college graduates, high school dropouts, all have the same low rate of migration at this point, okay? So um, migration is a young person's game, but what isn't a young person's game is earning high income, okay? The high income earners, the median age of a top earner in the census is 49. The median age of an adult mover is 31. So people are deciding where to live and making their migration decisions about two decades before they enter their peak income period. And I think that this, is, this sort of shows an unexpected genius of a millionaire tax system because the millionaires are essentially the late career working rich who are really embedded in where they are. The people who are mobile are early career professionals. And they don't really care what the millionaire tax rate, they don't care about the millionaire tax because if they ever pay it, it'll be decades in the future and only if they're extremely successful. So 
In this sense, the tax is an intergenerational, it's an intergenerational transfer. Taxing the late career working rich who aren't going anywhere, use the revenues to invest in things that matter to young people starting out, and that's education, um, infrastructure, public services, amenities, quality of life. Um, and I think ultimately this is why um, places with highly progressive income taxes in the U.S., that's like New York and California, can still thrive as centers for talent and centers for elite economic success um, because they focus on the pipeline and the quality of life for young professionals, and um, they invest in what can attract and retain and retain young professionals, and then send them the bill if and when uh, they achieve their highest aspirations. Um, and in this way, the top tax rates fall on the people who are least mobile and who have the greatest ability, and those among them who have the greatest ability to pay. So really quickly wrapping up, Thomas Piketty, in his book Capital in the 21st Century, argues that the post-war era of broad-based economic growth and shared prosperity was an anomaly in the history of capitalism, essentially, and that um, the future will entail steadily rising concentration of wealth and power in society. And so I don't know if he's right, but that's what's been happening. And there haven't been very few efforts to try to counteract this. But one of them is the millionaire tax movement. And so I think it's really important to have compelling evidence of what these taxes do and how viable they are in a world where some states are just not going to, to have them. And I also think it's raised a lot of other interesting questions about the nature of globalization, the supposed death of distance, and hypermobility as things that have been really oversold and misunderstood for a long time. And I really loved getting into that in the book. I've run out of time um, to talk about that. So that's where I will leave off. But um, thank you very much for, for listening. Okay, so um, I'm going to talk about some of the implications of Christabel's findings for the UK. Um, but first, I think it's worth emphasizing how little is currently known about tax flight from the UK to abroad. We really have no administrative data at all on this at the moment in the UK. That's mainly because of the difficulty of accessing individual taxpayer data, and also with collecting data at both ends, so where people move to and from. What's really remarkable about Christabel's work, I think, is that he's found a way of obtaining census-level data for a system that has significant differences in the tax rate, but in a setting, the US, where the data allows him to look at both ends. That will be very difficult to achieve with tax flight from the UK to abroad. It's not impossible, I think, but no one's done it yet. So the important point to make is that when you hear stories about the risk of taxpayers fleeing the UK, it's not based on any representative data because actually we don't have any. Um, really, it's based almost entirely on anecdotes. So you'll immediately recognise these pictures of um, Lewis Hamilton and Richard Branson. Um, the third photo is a little bit less obvious. This is the private island of Breku, where the Barclay brothers live. So they're the owners of the Telegraph. 
Um, but as Christabel's shown, these people are really not representative, even of the top 0.1% um, of income earners, let alone the top 1% as a whole. So, although we obviously need to be careful in applying Christabel's findings to the UK, I think his research is already a huge advance on the anecdotes and received wisdom that we've been relying solely upon until now. So, with that in mind, I want to just take a look at three areas of UK tax policy where we've heard quite a lot about the risk of tax flight, um, starting with non-DOMs. Now, as you might remember, the non-DOM tax status caused some controversy <laughs> in the 2015 general election. So what happened was that during the campaign, Labour announced plans to abolish non-DOM status altogether. Um, but then, and probably much to Ed Miliband's dismay, I think, the media got hold of some footage of Ed Balls saying that abolition would cost Britain money because of the number of non-DOMs who would leave the country. And at the time, I think this concern seemed to resonate because even people who thought that non-DOM status was fundamentally unfair were still worried about tax flight. So when it was claimed in the Telegraph that as many as 30,000 entrepreneurs and business leaders would flee the UK, this was the sort of figure that stuck in the mind. But now, just this year, it happens that for the first time, the HMRC has released some statistics on the population of non-DOMs, and these immediately make the 30,000 claim look, let's say, somewhat at the extreme um, end of the predictions. In fact, the total number of people gaining a tax advantage from non-DOM status in 2015 was around uh, 55,000, so that would involve over half of them leaving. Um, but who are these non-DOMs, so what do we know about them? Well, really we're concerned with the subset who are resident in the UK but who managed to persuade HMRC that their permanent home is in another country. And these people can often keep non-DOM status even as long-term residents of the UK. So in 2015 we see that um, there were just over 5,000 uh, non-DOMs who had lived in the UK for more than seven of the past nine years. The CEOs of several FTSE 100 companies currently have non-DOM status, and until recently so did Viscount Rothermere, the owner of the Daily Mail. Um, Viscount Rothermere is quite an interesting case because he inherited non-DOM status from his father and managed to persuade the HMRC that his permanent home was in France, despite growing up in Scotland and then moving to Wiltshire. <laughs> um, now... The advantage of being a non-DOM is that you can claim what's called the uh, remittance basis of taxation, and this basically means that you don't pay tax on your foreign income. Um, in practice, I think this means that non-DOMs don't pay any tax on their capital income unless they're silly enough to keep their savings and investments in the UK. I want to emphasise that all other UK residents have to pay tax on their worldwide income. So for most people, it doesn't really help to make your income appear offshore. You still have to pay tax on that, um, just like your UK income. But if you're on the remittance basis, then non-DOMs only pay tax on their foreign income if they bring it into the UK, and even then not if they can take advantage of various um, special reliefs. On the other hand, non-DOMs do still have to pay tax on their UK income, 
And actually, we can use this information to take a fairly good guess at the profile of your typical non-DOM. And much as Christopher was suggesting the problem with anecdotes, it turns out it looks from this data like most non-DOMs are not actually Russian oligarchs, far from it. Um, what the HMRC stats show is just what a remarkably high proportion of total non-DOM tax revenue comes from national insurance contributions. And I can tell you that Roman Abramovich is probably not paying national insurance. Um, these are paid by employees. So it looks like most non-DOMs are actually the working rich, earning income from UK employment. As Christabel said, it's not going to be all that easy for them to leave and earn those same salaries elsewhere. Now, of course, if the remittance basis was abolished, then some non-DOMs would leave. But they're most likely to be the relatively small number with extremely high foreign incomes, but who are not employed in the UK. And note that those are precisely the ones who are currently paying hardly any UK tax anyway. And of course, of those who stayed, they would pay more on the same terms as everybody else. So, of course, we can't be sure about this, but it looks like maybe Ed Balls was wrong on this one. Okay, next I want to look at the implications for Scotland. This is where we have the closest match, actually, with Christabel's research and also the most recent developments. So last April, Scotland acquired the devolved power to set its own income tax rates and bans separately from the rest of the UK. And just a couple of weeks ago, at the start of November, the Scottish Government started consulting on whether Scotland should raise its top rate of income tax to 50%. So that's 5% higher than the rest of the UK. So, just like the border studies that Christabel mentioned, we could soon have a situation where your tax rate depends on whether you live on the north or south side of Hadrian's Wall. And under these new devolved tax powers, there won't be a separate Scottish tax authority, but HMRC will um, allocate the revenue from income tax according to the taxpayer's residency. So taxpayers living in Scotland will pay the Scottish rate on all their income, regardless of whether it's earned in Scotland or England or anywhere else. But people living elsewhere in the UK will continue to pay the UK rate. So this means that Scotland now faces a dilemma almost exactly like the one faced by individual US states. Scotland could make its tax rates more progressive, but if individual taxpayers decide to locate, for example, to Cornwall, which I assumed was the UK equivalent of Florida, <laughs> then the fear is that this might limit any revenue gains. But would tax flight actually occur in large enough numbers to offset the undoubted revenue gains from the higher rate amongst those who stayed? Well, Christabel's work, I think, strongly suggests not, but the Scottish Government is clearly very worried about this at the moment. Um, maybe this is an area where Christabel's book could make a direct impact, I think. It hasn't been cited yet in any of the research for the Scottish Government that I can see, so I guess we'll have to watch this space on that. Finally, I want to take a brief look at uh, uh, changes to the UK top rate of income tax. So the top marginal rate is currently set at 45% and it applies to about 1.2% of all taxpayers. So that's about 350,000 people. 
you'll probably have heard this quote um, that the 1%, uh, top 1% of uh, taxpayers now contribute 27% of all income tax revenue. Partly, I think this is intended to convey a moral claim that the rich are already paying their fair share. But at least sometimes, I think it's also serving as a veiled sort of threat. So it's actually the Atlas Shrugged narrative again, that if you push us any further, we'll leave, and then everyone else is going to have to pick up the bill. Now, it's true that the share of income tax paid by the top 1% has increased from 11% in 1976 to 27% today. But that's not because of changes in the top income tax rate, which has actually moved in the opposite direction. Instead, it's mostly because of this huge increase in inequality of income, such that even after tax, as this graph shows, um, the share of household income going to the top 1% has doubled since the 1970s in the UK. In 1976, the top rate of income tax was 83%, plus a surtax of 15% on investment income, so famously making a top marginal rate of 98%. Now the top rate is 45%, although the effective rate on investment um, income can be much lower than that. Top rate uh, was recently raised to 50% at the end of the last Labour government, but then it was cut again by the coalition in 2013. So what can we learn from the 50p experiment in terms of tax flight? Well, not much, unfortunately, I think. Um, Studies by the IFS and HMRC have shown that the 50p rate didn't bring in much additional revenue. But in interpreting this, I think we have to be careful to distinguish between effects on real activity on the one hand and what I might call exercises in paper pushing on the other hand. In justifying the cut to the 50p rate, the coalition obviously emphasised the impact on real activity. So that's the idea of migration, as Christabel's been talking about directly, and the effect on working hours and efforts of those people at the top of the distribution. But it looks much more likely, I think, that the main effects were in what we might somewhat generously call sensible tax planning. Um, And that, in this particular context, I think would involve shifting what's really labour income into dividends and sometimes um, capital gains, both of which are currently taxed at a much lower rate. So the truthful answer is, I think, Based on the UK data, we really still don't know how many people would leave if the top rate um, was increased from where it is now. But I want to conclude with just two speculations on this. The first is that I think we might plausibly see Christabel's workers marking out the upper bound for tax flight from the UK, at least for equivalent tax differentials. We know that there are a lot more social and cultural barriers to moving from the UK to abroad than there are between US states. We also know that across the population as a whole, the migration rate within the EU 15 rich countries is actually 10 times lower than between US states. So it seems not unreasonable to think that the very low rates of tax flight observed by Cristobal in the US might actually be even lower for the UK to abroad. But my second point is that although Christabel is absolutely right to focus mainly on tax rates and the importance of place, 
In the UK, I think we've learned from Brexit that political tone can have quite an important impact on migration too. So perhaps it's important to think not only about what tax rates to set, but also about how any increase is going to be sold politically to those who have to pay it as being the fair and right thing to do. And with that, I think it's probably best if I hand over to Ed Miliband. <laughs> <laughs> Right, I've got no PowerPoint uh, presentation, sorry about that. Um, well, look, f first of all, I want to uh, congratulate my two um, fellow contributors. Christabel, your book, which I read um, over the weekend, is excellent, and I recommend it to you all. Uh, and you can get a signed copy uh, from him uh, um, afterwards. Um, and Andy, that was a great presentation because I think I was actually just looking up the FT report of that non-DOM data and basically it sort of said, I don't want to misquote them, but it basically sort of said uh, non-DOMs contribute nine billion a year um, and it certainly didn't break it down in the way that you have um, to, to actually get some granularity uh, into it. Um, so apart from praising uh, the book, um, I want to agree with its central insight, uh, which is that I think the shorthand for this could be Switzerland is a nice place to live, but London's better. <laughs> uh, which is that, you know, the, the temptation to move somewhere which has lower taxes, or I'll come on to London's tax status in a, in a bit, but the temptation to move to somewhere else and the threat to move somewhere else turns out to, in many cases, be an empty threat. It's worth saying that before the 1997 general election, I looked this up uh, before this uh, talk, the comedian Jim Davidson, uh, the late Paul Daniels, the magician and Andrew Lloyd Webber all threatened to emigrate and none of them did. Um, um, so I think so that's just sort of anecdotal <laughs> rather than econometric uh, analysis which suggests that your central insight is right, place links people uh, in, in ways that uh, are, are, are quite uh, sticky and, and durable. I just want to make four substantive points about um, what we heard. Uh, the first is about what you might call the kind of um, most revelatory moment for me who'd read the book uh, in your presentation. And I wonder if you can just put back up that slide about the optimal... The opt maybe you can't. About the optimal tax rate. But while you're doing that, I mean... This is really interesting analysis about how many people actually move in response to tax rates. But of course, but the real sort of drama in this, because this is a, as Andy will know, this is a source of deb big debate in the UK, is what is the optimal point at which you start losing revenue? And so I think um, Christabel's analysis, which is like two or three from the end, or but maybe a bit more, um, it is really interesting in that respect because it suggests a much higher number, 60-something percent. Yeah, there. Uh, you, what, what's the number that you ended up with uh, from your analysis? 68. Yeah, I mean, I think that... Okay, so that's a much higher number than organisations like the Institute of Fiscal Studies and others would suggest. They would say have it somewhere, I think I'm right in saying, in the 40s. Um, so, look, that is a really important finding. It doesn't mean you raise the top rate to 68%, but it's obviously very, very different. I just want to emphasize the drama of this. I suppose one query I have, 
don't want to take up the time, but is whether that includes people sort of shifting their money, avoid, avoiding paying tax rather than moving, if you see what I mean. Yes, that estimate is the... The, the clicker doesn't show... Right, but it includes... That's the income reporting elasticity. So if you raise the taxes, right. we know that people okay. will find some okay. way to report a bit less income. Okay, well, look, so that's, that's sort of, that's dramatic. That's this. dramatic and uh, very important. I suppose a subsequent question to this is people, and you do deal with this a bit in the book, people who don't move themselves but move their money. Uh, I'm not talking about their income, but their wealth. So that, and that's the old Paradise Papers, Panama Papers, and all that. So, but that, but I mean, sort of park that in a, in a sense. So, so first, I think that's really fascinating finding. Secondly, I would sort of bid for you to do your next book uh, okay. on the following question, which is: Can we apply the same to business and business taxation? There's a big debate going on in the United States at the moment in President Tr Trump's rotten tax bill. He wants to cut. Uh, tax rates dramatically for corporations. The UK government, I know you think it's, we're in the middle of austerity, but it hasn't been austerity for big corporations. They've cut uh, corporation taxes by £15 billion since 2010. They've cut the, tax, the corporation tax rate from 26% to what will eventually be 17%. Now, this is based on the same, um, mm -hmm. I contend, mythology that the millionaire's tax cut is based on. The actual remarkable thing about this tax cut is I've never, to be fair to business, I've never heard a business person making the case for these tax cuts. They've actually said that that's not the biggest reason why we'd locate in a particular country. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a sort of really interesting, and, and we know that we're in a massive beggar my neighbor situation with other countries. Ireland did it, I think it's 10, now 12 and a half. Uh, you know, countries cutting their corporation tax rates. So my second point is uh, sequel um, on, uh, on, on whether the same can be done uh, for business uh, taxation. Thirdly, and slightly more first principles is this. Um, do we want the millionaires and billionaires who would threaten to move not to move? In other words, do we care about having them here? I think there's an issue here about us looking at one side of the ledger, and this is notwithstanding my praise for the analysis, and it is really, really important because it shows the problem is much less big than people uh, say, and, and so on and so forth, and well overdone, and it's really, really important finding. But I think sort of beyond that, on Andy's slide about the non-DOMs, well, what do we think about these two, two billion pounds from these non-DOMs, right? Uh, you know, We've got this still in place, an incredibly bizarre, unfair system of uh, taxation for this very small group. Britain is described as a tax haven, as you, just, as you did earlier. You know, we, 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 we live in a tax haven. If you live in London, you live in a tax haven. That's the news from tonight. And the question is whether we want to carry on living in a tax haven or whether we think it's right to do something about this. Now, I don't think we'd lose the two billion. I certainly don't think we'd lose nine billion. I don't think we'd lose the two billion. But the question is what, and this is, this is a really interesting question, what are we willing to give up? But also, what's on the other side of the ledger? See, I'm not convinced that having these people in the, in the subset is so great for the country. You know, having all these oligarchs, tycoons and so on, is it, is it net good for the country? Well, you can see some ways in which it might be good because of the revenue they, um, they contribute, but you can see some ways in which it's quite bad as well. Take our sclerotic housing market. I just want to give you one fact about 
the, the borough of Kensington, uh, Kensington and Chelsea, where the Grenfell Tower uh, fire happened, it has 1,652 empty homes in it. I mean, like, I'm talking about empty homes. I'm talking about people who don't rent those homes. That's where the, the lights are never on. Some of them empty for years and years and years. Now, actually, some of them obviously won't be owned by the non-DOM. But I think there's a sort of big question, and I, I'm looking at John Hills here, who directs the Inequalities Institute. I think there's a really interesting question here about what I would call the social exclusion of the 0.1%. Is the social exclusion of the 0.1%, are the socially excluded 0.1% good for the country or bad for the country? They might be good in terms of revenue, but they might be bad in lots and lots of other ways which have a direct effect on us. There's this chap called Fred Hirsch who wrote a book called The Social Limits to Growth many, many years ago. And in it, he talks about this idea of positional goods. That, that means a, a, a good that is scarce, where one person's ownership of it excludes another person's ownership of it, housing being an example that he cites. Well, look, in a sense... The London housing market being oriented to the global super-rich who can afford to buy from abroad, etc., etc., leave their houses empty, has an effect on all of you. Because it trickles down into everyone in the population. And so I think there's a really interesting piece of work to be done on actually the balance of these two uh, items, even, as I say, notwithstanding uh, the uh, analysis. Last point I want to make is... Uh, sort of ideological um, uh, point. Because in a way, I think there are two arguments made about this millionaires, uh, taxes on millionaires. One, they'll all leave the country. But secondly, and this is a, and I think Andy was sort of kind of making reference to this implicitly, but also the argument that, oh, well, they deserved it. Well, look, you know, whether they leave the country or not, they deserve to keep their money and pay these lower taxes. And that is, a kind of, that is a strong argument that is made by people. I just want to read to you something that Elizabeth Warren, who's a US senator, uh, said. And it's a, it was a clip that went viral in her, I think it was her primary campaign for the US Senate. There is nobody in this country who got rich on their own. Nobody. You built a factory out there, good for you. But I want to be clear, you moved your goods to market on roads the rest of us paid for. You hired workers the rest of us paid to educate. You were safe in your factory because of police forces and fire forces the rest of us paid for. You don't have to worry that marauding bands would come and seize everything in your factory. Now look, you built a factory and it turned into something terrific or a great idea. God bless. Keep a hunk of it. But part of the underlying social contract is you take a hunk of that and pay forward for the next kid who comes along. Now, the reason I read that is that I think, I think there's two arguments that have to be made in this. And Christopher's made one very important argument, which is the myth of millionaire tax flight is indeed a myth. But the second argument has got to, has got to be made is why it's right to have a progressive tax system and why it's right uh, for people who are rich. And I think the progressive tax system is kind of not really defended, actually. I mean, it's there in, in a way, but it's not really defended. And I think it needs to be defended more for some of the reasons that Elizabeth Warren um, laid out. So that's um, what I wanted to say, but uh, it's a great book. It deserves to be uh, read and uh, understood and absorbed by people. Thanks very much. Should I? Would you like to?
Yeah, is this I take one, one round of questions. Sure. Okay. Um, I'm going to... Um, Ed's raised and Andy have raised some absolutely fantastic points. And I think although we're quite short of time, I'm assuming that you might like to hear if Christopher had any points to make in response, just very briefly. Yeah, uh, I would just address uh, quickly the issue of uh, corporate uh, migration. It's an important one. Corporations today are playing very elaborate games of accounting and declaring that their foreign profits were earned in Ireland, managed from Bermuda. Um, and so these are two things. Um, one is that U.S. laws have passed U.S. laws say you're allowed to do this. There's specific loopholes have been put on the whole. And the second is that none of this involves actual migration. So the two companies that use this most aggressively are Google and Apple. And I can tell you where I live. I'm down the road from both of these companies. And uh, Google and Apple have not moved to Ireland or Bermuda. They're headquartered in Mountain View and Cupertino, uh, exactly where I live. Apple has just built a $5 billion new campus. It's one of the most expensive buildings in the United States. They've invested for decades into the future is where their home is going to be. Uh, what they're doing is accounting games. They've got you know maybe 1,000 people or so working in, in Ireland justifying this, so, this sort of game. Uh, but So the companies are not moving, and the headquarters are not moving, and the work that Apple's doing, uh, and the corporate management work and the creative work is not going anywhere. They've found ways to declare their profits somewhere else. So it is a different thing than migration. Um, uh, and that's the same with Google. Thank you. Th thank you all so much. So I think we can fit in at least a couple of questions. If I could ask, we have stewards who are going to kindly come with microphones. Could I take you first, this gentleman here, and the woman in the grey jumper there. And if I could ask you to say very briefly who you are and to make your questions succinct. Thank you so much. Uh, hi there. I'm Tom Pope from the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Uh -huh. I just wanted to talk very briefly about the E equals 0.25. I think there is a lot of uncertainty about that number. We tend to think it's maybe a bit higher at the top, but also we know that that depends on the tax system and the opportunities for avoidance that the tax system has. So I wonder if you talk a little bit about, so those top income taxpayers in the US, are there other ways for them to avoid the tax, for example, by becoming S-corporations or something that are not, um, that do not require moving, and therefore, to the re how important does the rest of the panel think so we're making sure that we equalize tax treatment across different forms of working is for actually taxing high-income people effectively. Would you like to ask your I question? I was actually going to ask a very similar question, just the same thing. In that case, there was a gentleman right there, just behind the steward, and we'll, we'll fit in the third notional third question. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, so, so my question really is, you've talked a great deal about the, the, the influence of income taxes. I wonder what the panel thinks about wealth taxes. Um, there's a sort of extra sting to them because they have that sort of flavour of expropriation, but there are good arguments for them. Would that be a better way to get rid of Jim Davidson? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, so the equals 0.025, that's the income elasticity, and are there other ways to avoid? So I would defend that as a consensus estimate, but, you know, it gets into a technical thing. I know there's some people like Marty Feldstein, very conservative, but very prominent uh, a public finance economist who argues that it's, that it's higher. But, um, but um, did you want to speak? Because I know that you were going to talk more about uh, elasticities. Yeah, so, on, so on, on that question of the optimal... Um, 
tax rate. I mean, the um, the work that the IFS has done and, and HMRC does show, um, and I wouldn't um, for a moment dispute this, that the, that the amount actually raised from the 50p um, tax was not very substantial and less than, uh, and it implies higher rates of tax elasticity than actually Christabel's coming out with, um, with 0.68 as the optimal tax rate. But I think, um, and this really actually links to the question that was asked about wealth taxes, um, this is because we we have to take account of what I called the paper-pushing response. So if you, if you tax returns on um, capital much lower than you tax labour income, then it is quite straightforward, and this is not anything to do with offshore, this is within the UK, you just turn your labour income into dividends if you're a company owner, or you, take them, you roll them up in the company and then you take them as capital gains. So while we have dividend tax rates and capital gains tax rates so much lower than rates on labour income, I actually don't see much hope of sub substantially raising um, the income tax rate. We would need to have a much broader base of income tax in order to, so that would have to go with um, these increased tax rates. And I think um, that's probably where I would look bef before going to a tax on assets, so a ta what we would commonly associate with a wealth tax, would be just to tax returns on wealth. Uh, more significantly than we do, and that would have the side effect of um, limiting some of these opportunities for sensible tax planning, as it's known, around the income tax. The, the design of the tax system can favor or disfavor these kinds of approaches. So in the state of Kansas, they decided to set a much lower tax rate on self-employed businesses. And what happened very quickly was a lot of professionals realized that they should stop working for a company and set themselves up as independent businesses and benefit from this much lower rate. So all of a sudden, there's a whole bunch of entrepreneurship People doing exactly the same work, but manage it. So this is just like a poorly designed system. And I do believe it's very important to be monitoring the tax system and watching for these sort of unintended loopholes and, and being rigorous about having minimizing the amount of games that go, goes on with this. Yeah. It looks like I've been left the Jim Davidson question. Um, <laughs> uh, um, so I, I think the question about wealth tax is... Uh, is, is important. In fact, episode eight of our podcast was on the land tax uh, to, to have to do a shameless plug um, uh, uh, for it. Very informative. Um, so I, I think you've got to look at both, actually. Um, I think you've got to look at both, uh, both wealth. Because, look, w wealth inequality on its own is an absolutely massive problem, much higher in the UK than income inequality. And so uh, if you care about inequality, you've got to look at both of them. I think the point from the IFS is characteristically acute, um, which is this issue of, I can't remember exactly the capital gains tax rate, but it's substantially lower than the income tax. Is it 28 yeah. But so it the, could be 10 if you have entrepreneurs' relief, which a lot of people... Thanks to the Labour government of 1997. Uh, so, uh, um, so, so it's anywhere between 10 and 28%. I mean, that, that, that is a massive problem if you're trying to counter avoidance. There's also a... I mean, it's, it's an interesting sort of uh, ideological question because wh wh why is it that we think that the people who really create wealth are people paying capital gains tax, where the poor, you know, the, the, the hardworking people who go out every day, work 50 or 60 hours a week, are suddenly somehow not the wealth creators and should pay a higher rate of tax. So I think equalisation is definitely something that should be um, 
on the agenda. I just want to make, if I've got time, just one brief point because I didn't make it earlier. I think there's this really interesting question. It wasn't sort of me originally who thought of it. Somebody, I just read something recently by somebody about this, which is the link between, because Andy talked about this, the top 1% pay 27% of the income tax. And that's obviously because their earnings, and it was 11% in 1976, that's obviously because their earnings are significantly higher. Now, I just think there's something we've got to think through in this, which is... What's actually happened here, I think, is the transmission mechanism is not what we've previously thought. It's probably that the income tax rates were substantially cut, which then enabled people to pay themselves, gave them an incentive to pay themselves significantly higher incomes. Compensation. That's, that, that's actually what's happened here. And so when you're thinking about what should the level of the income tax rate be, I think you do have to think about this question of the incentives. Because, look, top earners now earn whatever it is in the FTSE 100, 150 times uh, median or lowest paid employee. You know, uh, what's happened is we've designed a system that gives people an incentive to do that and pay themselves massively over the odds. And so I think, I think as part of all this, you've got to think about the interaction between what I rather infamously called pre-distribution and redistribution, because the two are, are actually connected to each other. Well, I know that there must be many other questions, but alas, we're nearly out of time. And I know that you will all uh, agree with me that we've had not only an incredibly uh, stimulating, uh, impressive set of presentations, but also a very refreshing evening in a world of, as you politely put it in your book, fact-free arguments, <laughs> or as we more cynically put it, post-truth uh, contexts. Um, it's been really fantastic to hear this very high-level uh, presentation and conversation between the panel, and I know that you'll want to uh, Join me in thanking them again for giving us, uh, at least this evening, many reasons to be cheerful.